Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, which is earlier than I would normally be recording these, but it's snowing out and I have a feeling that I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time cleaning up out there later. So I wanted to do these while I was fresh and while I had plenty of time. And also I wanted to start out by addressing the future of the Q&As, which the short version is it's nothing's going to be changing in the short term, although I might have to skip one or two in the coming months. If you'd like to hear me elaborate about that, stick around. If you don't care, that's totally cool. Just skip on to the next question on the Q&As. But if you do want to hear more on the decision for that, I read every single post and every comment regarding your suggestions on this. And thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I really was kind of curious what people's thoughts are on it. And all of you were so amazingly supportive that most people were just like, do what you got to do, but I like this or I prefer that, which is awesome. Thank you. And in reading through those, there were a couple things that I wanted to address that I thought were good ideas, but not quite a fit for me or not a fit for today. And one of the great ideas I saw was somebody had mentioned, well, why don't you treat this more like an educational thing and take people's questions and turn them into answers about that subject that you could list on a different channel or something. So if people have questions, they could just search there and maybe the answer was already answered. And from a nerd point of view, which I'm obviously a massive nerd, but that would be the right answer. Except the purpose of all of these Q&As, at least from my perspective, has always been to make it feel like the person whose question I'm answering, or anybody who's just listening and and enjoying it, are sitting across from me at a coffee shop or a bar or something, and we're just hanging out talking about this stuff, which is some other people's comments as well, as they liked the personal nature of it. So while that was a good idea, I really want all of these to always feel like they're just laid-back conversations between, between fellow retro gaming nerds, music nerds, whatever we are, I'm definitely a nerd, so, you know, just a a laid-back conversation where I try my best to answer them in detail, but... Uh, you know, I don't want to read from a script ever. You know, sometimes I'll look up the answers right here while we're doing it, but I do want these to feel more personal. And uh, I, while I do appreciate the suggestion, it was a great suggestion. It just, it's not the goal of these Q&As. So even as the channel grows and the support grows, I still always want it to feel like a very just chill conversation. Um, the other thing a couple people mentioned Uh, which I was very humbled by, but a bunch of people mentioned raising the support tiers to a level where, you know, you have to support it X amount in order to ask a question. And respectfully, um, that's not what I'm going to do today. And I hope that I never get to a place where I have to do that. Because while, you know, bottom feeding trolls on Twitter love to call me an elitist gatekeeper, I think actions speak louder than words. And I've spent the past 10 years trying to include everybody all the time. Now, the unfortunate reality is, while I would love to do all of this stuff for free, uh, you can't go to your, you know, your landlord or your mortgage company and tell them how hard you tried this month. You have to pay them, which is why I have these support services up to keep all of this stuff going. Um, But I still want to make it feel like everyone is welcome. And I know that's not at all the perspective of the people who suggested raising the tier. Uh, I know it was coming from a, a wonderful and supportive place. So I'm by no means talking down to you like that. I just mean that I, I still want this to feel like anybody is or everybody is welcome, regardless of in their, if they're in a position to support. And on other videos, not the Q&As, but on every other video I do, I spend probably an hour a day answering questions on comments and on social media. And I don't get to all of them. uh, And I can't be your personal tech support. I can't answer a thousand questions. But I do try to answer questions everywhere, no matter what. 
Um, only just not in the comments of these Q&As because that would defeat the purpose of a supporter Q&A. Hopefully you all understand that. But someday, maybe if the support services grow too big and they just turn into like two, three hour Q&A videos, um, then I might have to raise the price for that just because I think it would alienate a lot of people that don't want to sit through four hours and you know, I, I do realize a lot of people already listen to them in their commutes and, they, you know, it's background noise and then they just kind of perk up and turn the volume up if it's something they care about. And if not, it's just me droning on, you know, you know just getting them through the day, which I love, by the way, it's zero negativity from that. But I think if it starts to pass a certain point, it's like, all, all right, already, you know, that's enough for one week. I only have enough hours of commute time. So that would be the only time I would raise the price. Um, and I don't want to. I, and in fact, you know, I, I would love to someday, you know, win the lottery and cap all of the support services at a dollar just to make it just to make, you know, make everybody still feel like they're part of helping. But, you know, that way I could I could take the brunt of it. But I, I'm not even remotely close to there now, especially because I don't do things like play by the YouTube algorithm and, you know, and I don't shill products. I, I it seems like I do sometimes because some products I love and I will talk about them as much as I want, but I really don't. I do all this stuff as honest and openly as I can, which basically means I'm going to be forever broke, which I'm fine with. That's my choice. I could go back to IT at any point uh, and be bored to death, be missing all of you. And it's not what I want to do because it's frustrating sometimes. You know, there's a lot of things that no one ever told me would be part of this, just running this thing. And it's very strange getting attacked on a regular basis online for doing such awful and horrible things like forgetting to list every single store that sells a product. <laughs> like, but, you know, uh, if that's the negativity I got to eat in order to be around all of the positive energy and the positive people in the scene, that's a small price to pay. And I'd much rather be doing this than than just doing the stuff that I used to do. Not insulting IT people. It's just, um, it's everybody's different, right? I know so many people that love more than anything being in that server room surrounded by computers, you know, always cold, you know, having the fans cranked up and, you know, just zoning in. And, you know, I, I love that too, but, you know, I, I think I'm more of an extrovert where I, I want to be around all of you, even virtually like this. So uh, I guess I kind of rambled on at that last part on why I'm still doing this, but uh, I just want to always be open and honest. And sometimes I say too much, which, hey, you know what? I'd rather say too much than come across like a liar, but I'll stop rambling, at least for this one. And let's jump into the questions we have. But once again, thank you all so much. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to keep it going, but I just very well might run into a spot where it's Friday afternoon and I go, my choice is to get a video out the next day for everybody or to drop what I'm doing and do an exhausted version of the Q&A where I might not be as, you know, as energetic as I like to be for these. And I think it's best for everybody if I skip those weeks, but I'm going to try not to. Uh, and if I do, it's really only going to be like if I'm sick, sick, or if it's something like, you know, it's uh, there's a video series I want to be getting out soon. And I think that takes priority over everything I do, because I think it's going to really be a much bigger picture thing. But we'll see. Starting us out over on Patreon, Nick had a couple of questions. First, they ordered the Otaku 10 port auto switch and want to know if it has the same problems I found with the six in three out switch. And I would not be able to comment that until unless I tested it, which I have not. Um, it's not something where I could just look at it and say, oh, they switched the chip, so it's fixed. It's something you would have to measure, and you need the right tools to measure it. You can't measure video voltages with a multimeter. And the easiest way to visualize this is like a DC voltage signal, something coming out of a power supply or a battery. If you put that on an oscilloscope, it's a straight line. 
And if you put a video signal on an oscilloscope, it's a square wave that has a maximum and minimum voltage. And that's what you have to, to measure in order to get the proper voltage. So think of an oscilloscope like a time machine that could slow everything down and snapshot it in a way where you could see the signal as it flows. And multimeters just can't do that. Not even really good ones. Maybe really expensive ones can, but they're going to be about the same price as a scope. So it kind of defeats the purpose there. Um, but without... Rambling. It's actually the second time I answered the question and I got 10 minutes into the first answer. So let's just let me just say that I will be going into test methods in a different video series because I want more reviewers to feel like they could confidently put up a review that says, hey, I tested this. Um, I might not have a deep understanding of video signals, but I used this set of test methods and here's what I found. Because I think a review like that would be equally as valid as the experts as long as you tell the basics. It appears to be in these situations, there's no voltage issue. Here's how I tested. So I'm going to leave it at that because uh, I'm going to go into deep explanation in a couple of weeks when I start to get these videos out. But I'm going to try to help people change this whole how we review stuff in retro gaming to make it easier for everybody. Now, you also asked about, um, does, is it common to have a bad experience with communication and shipping with them? Um, I don't like to comment on that stuff too much, but I will say that I've heard a bunch of people say that they've had communication and shipping issues with the otaku stuff, and I try to be, I try to be respectful of both sides. It's always been, you know, even though it's like almost illegal to do this today, uh, I've always been the, the type of person who naturally stops and listens to both sides, and I completely understand why a customer would be super pissed if um, you know they bought something and haven't heard any communication afterwards and it's been a while. And I also understand what companies are up against with global part shortages, shipping crisis, shipping cost, um, and just being a small company trying to still make it. So uh, I really don't want to comment more on that other than you know the one good thing that we as consumers have, as long as we don't abuse it, is the protection for credit cards and for PayPal and stuff like that. And I want to make sure to just put it out there that do not abuse that because not only could you hurt businesses, but if people start to abuse it, they're just going to turn that feature off globally. So the only other comment I'll have is if you are at a point where you bought something two, two months and three weeks ago, and the time the period that your credit card or company or whatever else has is three months before you could cancel that charge, I would absolutely email the company and say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the type of person that does a chargeback. But if you haven't communicated at all and I'm about to lose my money, it's not about being respectful uh, to your company. It's about I'm not losing my money to get nothing. So I'm going to cancel my payment if I don't hear from you. I don't think that's too harsh. Once again, as long as you don't abuse it, wait till it's approaching the end of the time that you're able to to do that. Don't do it three weeks after you placed your order. Um, but there is that protection in place for us. So, you know, I, I, I'm dead in the middle on this because I've been somebody that ran a small business or worked for a small company where you had to be the people uh, distributing these things. And I've also been a customer that didn't get the thing that they paid for. So I see both sides. And I think uh, as long as we as customers just exercise as much patience as possible until it becomes keep our money or not or lose our money. I think that's a fair way to approach it. Um, and you know, it sucks for the companies, but you know, if it's been three months without communication, it's their fault or whatever the time period is for your return thing. Uh, lastly, um, the they have a Japanese Dreamcast and they've been looking into power supplies that would work in the EU. Um, however, they can't find solid info. 
So there's a couple of things that you could do. You could open up your Dreamcast and you could read it and you could see what the voltages are rated for. And some internal power supplies will say 100 to 240 volts. Uh, And I'm not specifically talking about Dreamcast. I'm talking worldwide on all products. Some will say that. So, you know, you could just use it everywhere. And others will say, you know, 100, uh, 115 to 120 volts or 100 to 120. And some say nothing. And if it says nothing, assume it just can't do it. Way safer to, to do that. And if that's the case, uh, yeah, that is the perfect time for a Pico PSU. Check the, the different stores that sell them. Uh, I believe I linked to ones, uh, I'm forgetting the store. I think it was oh man it was the on store i'm so sorry i forgot that there's so many stores with similar names i don't mean to be disrespectful but i'll try to find the link but yeah there's two parts you have to buy or there's three parts you have to buy the uh, well-built dream psu or, or whatever it is that um that's used i believe christoph's open source design is sold by a lot of these stores then you have to get a good Pico PSU, because I've bought three of them, and I had friends who were experts in power look at them, and all three were wildly different, and the most expensive was not the best. So you have to make sure you get a good Pico PSU, and you also have to make sure you get a good external brick. Um, The triads have been excellent, but you might need to get a different brand, so just always make sure to get a good rated brand, because if you get a great internal Pico PSU, you get a great internal um, conversion to use that on the Dreamcast, and you use a crappy wall wart, it just defeats the purpose. So I'll try to find links for you, uh, and we'll go from there. But um, but yeah, good good luck with that, but just be careful with the power supplies and get them from, from good rated people. Finny wanted to chime in on the discussion from last week about do you ever need to replace those little surface mount capacitors? And I said, in your cap replacement, it's not something you would need to worry about unless it's something that's been identified by the community as a problematic one, like the one in the the ghosting cap for Super Nintendo or the jail bar cap on PC Engine and Turbo Graphics. And Finney wanted to uh, provide an anecdote that also should be paid attention to. They did have to replace surface mount caps on their first Model 1 Genesis because they were cracked. Surface mount ceramics are particularly vulnerable to cracking under stress when the PCB is flexed, and the earlier revision Model 1 has some placed in particularly vulnerable positions. Excellent, excellent point. I should have said that. Always do a visual inspection of your board. Um, and especially in, in the context of, well, I'm going to do a capacitor replacement to keep this board l- running as long as possible, make sure it's well lit. Some people use magnifying glasses or those magnifying stations. Some people take pictures and zoom in because that might be easier and free if you already have a, a somewhat decent cell phone. So yes, visual inspection to make sure there's no cracked or broken parts. Uh, you know, I feel dumb for forgetting that. So thank you very much, Finney, for letting letting everybody know. Um, and, you know, the Finney said the damage on that case was pretty blatant, so it was pretty easy to, to spot. And there's also some noisiness in audio, but I, I have had friends show me pictures of, like, hairline cracks and stuff like that, that, you know, if you just glanced over it, you wouldn't have seen. But if you used a magnifying glass in a well-lit area, you could be like, oh, wow, that cap's actually broken. So let me go get a schematic, figure out what the capacitance is, and order a new one. So excellent tip. Thank you for, for reminding us. 
Malamute just wanted to chime in and say, yes, you could totally mod a PS2 Slim to have an external storage solution. Uh, a bunch of people also commented across YouTube and other platforms and, and reached out to remind me as well. I'm always glad I'm cautious. Uh, I thought I remembered it that way, but I would rather I would rather remind everybody to double check rather than have somebody waste their money on buying one. Um, and they specifically use one that has an external SD card reader. It's limited to 128 gig cards, but they've had success with it. Uh, so that's great. That's a, an awesome solution. The thing I was talking about last week, I, I don't know when that's coming out, but it might be this week or it might be next week, but it's something I'm very excited about. And I will include a PS2 demo in there as well. So I'll just leave it at that. A couple of things from Yepo. First, it seems Patreon deleted their question and they tried again to repost it. Uh, Patreon seems to randomly delete longer posts. I don't know why. Uh, I have no... I have no way to, to regulate that. So if for whatever reason your post disappears, chop it up into two or or do, you know, a main question and then have your, you know, like a short two paragraph and then have replies to your own question as the rest of it. Just some suggestions. I'm really sorry. There's nothing I could do about it. There certainly isn't a setting I could change to, to help fix the issue. But anyway, on to your actual questions. Uh, first, they tried um, the new open source scan converter and wanted to export all of their profiles, and they weren't able to read that in a Windows 7 or 10 machine. So that's a good point, one that I completely forgot to bring up. If you want to do something like you get yourself in a cheap old micro SD, you back up your profiles to it, you put that in a different OSSC to import them, that's all you need to do. But if you're looking to copy them to your computer, then yeah, you would have to use some kind of method that could read a Linux formatted drive. My uh, my preference these days have either been virtual machines or, um, or or dual booting, but usually I just put it right into a VM on my Unraid server. I have the uh, USB 3 port. I have a separate card that's passed through, so I could just put it in my card reader, and that's how I do it. Um, but it, any way that you could read that stuff, I believe Max will read them as well. So good point. I forgot to bring that up. Um, but you don't need that stuff to back up and restore. You just would have to have an extra SD card, which if you have a bag of old ones laying around, that might even be easiest. So back up your profiles to SD card number one, use SD card number two to, uh, to flash the latest firmware for whenever the next one comes out, then put SD card one back in to import or if you get multiple OSSCs, or if you're sharing with friends. Um, but yeah, you, you were right about that, and I should have addressed it and shown some kind of demo. Uh, next, they used this opportunity to try optimal settings on their NES and failed. Using the checkerboard pattern, if they switch from generic 4x3 to optimal 256x240, they get concentric curved patterns originating, originating on both lower corners of the screen. They could set the sampling phase so that it disappears, but by then the checkerboard is a near uniform gray with 45 degree diagonal chromatic aberrations across the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't really understand why that would be happening. So if you're using composite video, you're you're never going to get uh, a good phase dialed in. Even, you know, even if you go through a core U, if you pass it through a, a retro tank with a good filter, and it, no matter what you do, it's, it's totally not going to happen. Um, S-Video, you could come close, but if you have an RGB modded NES and you're trying to do this, uh, it's been the opposite for me. I don't, I don't really have that many issues. There could be other things wrong with your setup. The mod could have unshielded cables. You could be using an unshielded cable. Uh, you could be mixing and matching 
you know, maybe your Super Nintendo cable that you're using has the uh, capacitors in it, and so does the NES RGB. There's a lot of outside factors to that, but generally speaking, uh, when you load up the correct profile, which, you know, not putting you down and anybody could make a mistake, but, you know, download like the Firebrand X profile for NES or something like that, um, and use the methods that I showed using the web interface, load that up, and then all you would need to do is set phase at that point. Uh, especially if you're using 240p test suite for it and, and everything else. I just don't really get issues like that. I have on other consoles, but not really on the NES. So I would think that there's something going on in your setup and just double check that you're using the right profile um, and that, you know, you're using the 240p test suite, and not a random uh, like test pattern that you may have downloaded just, just to be safe on that. And lastly, the original power supply of their Atari 2600 seems to be slowly dying. Um, can they, it, it has three flathead screws with, uh, slot drives. Can they open it up to fix it? And I would say, try it, you know, obviously don't open it up when it's plugged into the wall. Always going to put out that stupid safety PSA, but yeah, open it up and see, uh, if you identify a capacitor in it, you replace it with one of equal, uh, equal or greater voltage value, but identical capacitance. See what happens. Um, if not, I would grab one of the triads with an adapter on there because that would just also be a way to completely solve the issue. But, you know, I like keeping original as much as possible too. So if it's as easy as opening it up and replacing the cap, do it. I did it on uh, almost all my Genesis power supplies just for peace of mind, and I'm glad I did it. Uh, I do still tend to use the triads because they're right in a box next to me and they're super easy and work on almost everything. But at least you have the option if you want to keep the original. Jason Lozen said they recently modded their Atari 2600 for a composite, and while it was a success, their G-Comp switch no longer recognizes the signal. They have no issues with the RetroTINK 5X, or if they plug it directly into a CRT. Any idea why the G-Comp would have issues? They don't have issues if they use their NES via composite. Um, well, I would first just double-check that the same cable, your composite video cable you're using for the NES also you know, use that one for the 2600 because you never know. But other than that, I, I would have almost no guesses to this. Um, if you had access to an oscilloscope, you could try to throw on an all white screen on, or, or, you know, color bars are already better, but uh, are always better. But if you had some way to, to measure it on a scope, you could see that maybe it's too low voltage. So the G comp isn't detecting it. And in which case you would just have to redo the mod um, and respectfully, something could have actually gone wrong with the mod. And don't forget, too, that CRTs are incredibly forgiving pieces of technology. If you send it an analog signal in the correct frequency range, it'll probably display it regardless if it's the wrong signal or not. As long as it's the right volt or within, as long as it's not over the voltage it can handle, and as long as it's in the right frequency, a CRT will work. And also, Mike with the RetroTINK 5X, uh, I believe tried to add a lot of tolerance in there, but I have no idea why it wouldn't work with the G-Comp. Uh, it could just be the auto-sensing isn't sensing that something's going through that port. Uh, so that would maybe be voltage. I don't know. That's a tough one, though. Um, I would double and triple check the mod first and make sure you didn't do something that I've done a million times, like use 750-ohm resistors when you're supposed to use 75, so that would obviously drop the voltage way too low. Um, and, and, you know, some basic stuff like when you plug it into your CRT, is it significantly dimmer than the NES when you plug that in? And if that's the case, 
goes back to the mod, but I've, I've never encountered that before. Um, so yeah, I would just double check everything and double check multiple ports of the GCOM switch just because. Atonal Assassin is still tweaking their setup that we've been talking about, and I do appreciate the follow-ups because um, I like hearing feedback like this, but it seems that the EasyCoo splitter, the HDMI splitter that I reviewed and, and said I had good experience with, worked well, but their monitor, along with any splitter, seems to be wonky for a second every two or three hours, only when there was a splitter between it. Um, so that's something that I haven't run into, but that's something that also I, I wouldn't be able to test a lot because I don't often do captures that last that long. Um, when I'm doing the testing, you know, captures last minutes at a time. And even when I'm doing live streams, uh, it's rare that mine go over two hours. So, you know, for, for playing games and stuff like that. So that's an interesting one. And that might be a whole number of different things that I probably couldn't even recreate. So, uh, you know, if blinking out for a second every two or three hours is an issue, I understand wanting to, to go a different route, but, you know, I, I don't know how much that would bother me. I think personally, if I was like at a boss in my favorite game and the signal b uh, blinked out and I lost, like I'd be livid and I would never trust the equipment again. But if I was, you know, if I had just saved and I was wandering around and you know, the screen blinked out and I died, but I was right back where I started, I probably would think, ah, oh, who cares? It'll just happen every now and then. So that's going to be up to you to decide completely. Um, but you do, you did say that you wanted to try the other side of it, where you split the signal on the analog side and then use any of the other equipment to just go straight through. So you have uh, an analog splitter uh, where you take maybe one composite video into your TV and one composite video into a retro tank and then the tank into your streaming setup. Um, doing it that way, there should be zero signal drop on the CRT ever unless there's a power outage. And, uh, it, you know, if there is, a, I guess, a drop in streaming somehow, then it's not as big of a deal because you're not killing your game in the middle of a gameplay. So... Uh, they went out and wanted to make sure they did not use a Y cable or Y type circuit for composite video. And they ended up getting a Radio Shack one input for output AV component video distribution amp. Um, yeah, that uh, that is a perfectly good solution. You may run into situations where it lowers the quality of the video a little bit. But I think in the context of what you're trying to do, that is an excellent thing to have. It's probably super cheap. And someday, if you'd like, grab a G-Comp switch with, you know, that's built for gaming and you won't get signal degradation. But if you want, these cheap solutions can work just as well. They might just require more devices in your chain or just a little bit more tweaking and setup. But that's, you, you did exactly the right thing. You, uh, you picked up a distribution amp. Um, I believe you said you got the component video one. But all you have to do is I would just put composite video into the green port and that should be just as good and it should be able to handle audio as well. And it could possibly even be an amplified audio signal so you don't get any audio drops when splitting it between two different output solutions. So uh, glad to hear that it's working for you. And I do appreciate chiming in on the setup because I was kind of curious how that was going. But it seems like you have a pretty solid solution now. And at least you know if there's any HDMI dropouts moving forward, it's your monitor or it's your capture card, not any of the splitters. Alex S was interested in purchasing an HDMI switch and went through that thread on shmups in order to figure out which one might be good for them. And they found an 
Esgeyr, S-G-E-Y-R, 4K 60 5x1 HDMI switch. And for their setup, it's been great, not too expensive at $40 right now, and they just wanted to post their feedback. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I do like hearing about stuff like that that works. I've personally had excellent experiences with 5 by one or 4 by one switches. Um, the worst thing that's happened is I have to sometimes power cycle them when switching resolutions on the OSSC, but for the price, they're good. The problem I've always had is with matrix switches. So five in, two out. Um, some of those just won't pass audio at all. And, you know, some of them, they'll pass audio for a week or two, and then I'll turn on the setup and the audio is gone forever, regardless of what the set or the switches and the settings are. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard to find consistent, cheap equipment. I imagine if you bought some pro level $2,000 switch, or if you bought one of those $500 um, uh, HD Fury ones, they'd probably be consistent, but that's not really what most of us are looking for. So uh, thanks for sharing your experience with your switch. Um, I generally would say that they're pretty safe to use, except the matrix ones are the one and ones with a lot of inputs, like an eight in switch are the ones that a lot of us in gaming are looking for. So, you know, keep the recommendations on the smaller ones coming uh, And But if you have your feedback on the larger ones, especially maybe consider posting in that thread or in any other discussion topic that encompasses stuff like that. Alan Bingham has some questions about a jailbroken 3DS, and I want to start by saying I am not a 3DS modding expert, and you should take what I have to say with a grain of salt, but I do have enough knowledge and experience to give some general info about this that might help point you in the right direction. Uh, but they just jailbroke their 3DS uh, for backup and all the right reasons, and They've read on some places that jailbroken 3DSs can accumulate junk data and gradually decrease in performance over time, sometimes resulting in killing the console altogether. <clears throat> and they've experienced a couple of recent occurrences where a DS game glitched and they had to reboot their console to get it to work. So a few things on that. I absolutely have in the past used jailbreak, jailbroken handhelds and lost a save or had a game glitch out when I was running it not from the original cartridge in different ways. And I think that's always a risk in any kind of jailbroken environment. And I think that's just something you're going to have to come to terms with. Uh, anybody who jailbreaks their console would have to come to terms with. You're not going to get the same exact reliability and performance. In some cases, it might be better. In some cases, it might be worse. But it's not identical to an original cartridge. And it's just something that you're going to have to, you'd have to just come to terms with if you wanted to decide it. Uh, as far as accumulating junk data, I can't comment on that at all because I've never really heard of that. But what I can say is a lot of times once people jailbreak their consoles or their handhelds, now they have access to a whole world of things that they didn't before, and they tend to overfill their SD cards. And while I don't know about 3DS specific stuff, I can tell you that a micro SD card that's half full will perform differently than a micro SD card that's 99% full. And it's pretty much the same with all storage media. So that that could certainly be it. I have never heard of a jailbreaking, a jailbroken 3DS dying as a result of the jailbreak. Uh, I'm sure bricking it, but that's completely different. I, I think the context in which you're talking about is you've jailbroken your 3DS and it dies a week later. And while that's totally plausible, my guess is that it would be way more likely that that was a well-worn 3DS that was on its last leg and the jailbreak was coincidental. Now, I opened this by saying, 
don't take my word here as you know as uh, as facts these are my opinions based on my jailbreaking experience and you know all the modding and hacking i've done over the years but um i'm not an expert in the 3ds jailbreak scene so i would definitely double check from reputable sources and that's always the hardest thing how do you know somebody's reputable if they have a hundred thousand followers make a really well-spoken video or really well-written post why wouldn't they be reputable but that doesn't mean anything and you know on the flip side too you have somebody that's never commented on anything before has a perfectly good explanation you know why wouldn't you you know their their opinion should be valid but you have nothing else to base it off of so it's kind of rough it's one of the hardest things in any in any information search at all these days is trying to figure out if your information is good or not uh so I, if anybody has any suggestions on where to look, or if anybody has their own experiences, please feel free to post. But just as a general thing, other than bricking your console while jailbreaking it, I don't think I've ever heard of a jailbreak killing a console before, so I wouldn't really worry. The only thing I'll say, if the 3DS is your favorite console, and if it's something that's incredibly important to you, that would be the type of thing where maybe you would consider buying a second. And I don't like to tell people to waste money. I'm not trying to say everybody should have double consoles. I'm just saying that in that context, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, I have all of my original cartridges. I have, you know, an original setup, you know, maybe my own personal one from a kid or whatever, where they keep that exactly as it was to have the same experience. And then they buy another one to jailbreak and beat up on and throw in their pocket and on the subway. And, you know, that way there's no sentimental value lost and they have a way to guarantee the original experience if needed. But, you know, it's it's expensive and it's a lot of money. And if you're just, you know, if you just want to know basic tips on the 3DS, I certainly wouldn't tell everybody buy two. So figured I'd add my thoughts. Hopefully I pointed you in the right direction and maybe other people could chime in on this as well. Carlos Moreau wants to know if I have any recommendations for really good and short component cables. They have an unpowered switch and they're planning to go right into a scaler, so they don't need anything longer than about a foot, but even six inches would be great if possible. Same for S-Video. They would buy six individual six-inch RCA cables, but only if that's the only option, because for the same price, you could get a whole HD RetroVision cable and have you know access to, to five of those. So I don't have any great advice for you, but I will say that I found this cable somewhere years ago. I think this is, this says Monoprice, so it must be it must be from them. I don't know if I bought it on Amazon or if I bought it directly from Monoprice. Um, it's very thick and not very bendy, so often that they will pull out of the connectors. So if this is a permanent solution, I would even consider you know, crimping the ends just a hair. You don't want the death grip to keep them in. And, you know, don't, don't spin shorter cables like this. Uh, you know, you want to try to make it smooth so they don't pull out. Um, but that's assuming that you found a good one. And the way I tested these was by doing, I was already doing a video analysis of a console. I took a screenshot, um, using good capture equipment, and I zoomed in a thousand percent, and I looked at things like the blue sky in Super Mario World, Link's face in A Link to the Past, and then I took the same screenshots with the HD retrovisions, and I couldn't tell the difference. So I'm not trying to say these are equal to the HD retrovisions, but I'm saying for my setup for gaming, I could not tell a difference, and there was no audio buzz that was greater or lesser than using the HD retrovisions. So you could just try to find yourself a well-shielded set of cables. 
Um, you could also buy a set, cut them open, and double check that they're actually shielded and not just filled with thick foam, but that kind of wastes the cable. So it really depends on your budget and what tools you have. If you have a good capture card and you have stuff like I just said where you could capture this stuff and do an analysis, that's cool. Uh, if you are going to cut them open, you could still use them for other stuff. Just cut it in the middle and now you could just make your own cables for other things in the future if you needed to. Or if they're unshielded, uh, I, I might even... Uh, send them back to Amazon and say they lied. These aren't shielded and I cut them open to, to double check. They probably won't take your money or give your money back if you cut them open. But yeah, so that's, that's my suggestion is in the case where you have to use a shorter cable, buy something that's listed as shielded and, uh, you know, also pick up a set of HD retrovisions. Cause if you're really wiring stuff like this up, you're going to need more cables at some point. So spending $15 or whatever it is, maybe it's gone up to 20 or something, but spending a reasonable amount of money on good, long, shielded cables that you know you could rely on, you're going to use them at some point or another. So um, and so I would get something that's listed as shielded, I would get the HD retrovisions, and then I would just kind of see what happens from there, do some kind of analysis, and hope for the best. Um, so it's not as easy as me just dropping a link because I bought these like six years ago. So maybe the same link would get you a different cable. Uh, but I would suggest picking up the HD retrovisions anyway, unless you're on a super budget and then start with one of these, hope for the best, and then eventually test in the future. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. Oliver Clare has a PlayStation 1 with a badly scraped case, uh, to the point where it actually looks like the previous owner was drawing prison-style tally marks on the case with a knife. Do I have any tips uh, for dealing with scratches and indentations, and do I know of anyone making reproduction PlayStation 1 cases, as they haven't had any luck finding any? Uh, so first of all, thank you for reminding me, Muramasa had an update about their PlayStation 1 shells that will be coming hopefully this year, and I forgot to write it up on the website. I am so far behind on, on posts and articles. There was not a pre-order, which is why I wasn't uh, in a rush to get it up. You didn't miss anything, um, but I, I really should have done a status update, and I feel bad about that. That. So I'll put a link to their tweet and their thread in this description so you can get the info right now and I'll try to swing back over to retro RGB posts to, to get that up and running as soon as I can. Um, so there, as far as reproduction cases, that's your answer for that. Um, as far as what to do with this shell, it's my opinion and not fact, you know, don't, don't take this to heart, but it, it's my opinion that when a shell is damaged beyond reasonable repair, Now's the time to have fun. So fill in the scratches with putty and, uh, you know, kind of uh, do it old car Bondo style where you fill in the scratches. Maybe, you know, you kind of cover it a little around it. You sand it down and now you paint it and you turn it into a work of art. And once again, only my opinion, when people take mint condition shells and do paint jobs on them, I'm always like, it is a beautiful piece of art, but you've also ruined a mint condition shell. I love that stuff for yellowed shells. Oh, that's, I, I think that's a perfect uh, way to, to modify a shell after it's been yellowed. And it'll probably last longer than trying to do a retro bright on it. Um, if you had some crazy mod you wanted to try where you drilled holes in the case and had external connectors, now's the time to switch cheese your, your uh, case because it's already in a bad, sh uh, in bad shape. So my, my suggestion to you would be, you know, look into the replacement cases. And if you wanted to, if you were an artist, have fun with this one, because if it's already damaged beyond repair, then you might as well just do whatever you want with it. So, you know, I always try to, to make that clear and over explain because I just have seen 
so many consoles over the years with Swiss cheese holes in the back because back in 2003, it was cool to to drill out holes for composite and individual audio jacks and S-video and put LED light strips or whatever the hell we, we used to do to consoles. That drives me crazy because you had a mint shell that was now damaged beyond repair because you put some jacks in it. Whereas this is the opposite, right? It's already damaged. Do whatever the heck you want. Have some fun. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to practice painting consoles, maybe now's the time. Uh, if you wanted to try to do a different design on one thing, just have some fun with it. But I'll leave the link to Muramasa's post to see what, uh, what else is available and when it's coming. Quantum Guitar has an excellent question that I have zero answer to. They want to know if I had any advice relative to replacing lithium-ion batteries in rechargeable handhelds when OEM replacements or upgrades are no longer available. I've got nothing, and I would like to fix that because that's a huge problem with PSPs. Um, it's going to be a problem with Wii U controllers and, and everything else. And it's approaching the time period, maybe not yet, but it's approaching the time period where we should be removing these batteries from these handhelds and consoles or whatever else in case they expand like they do with the PSP or in case there's any other problems. And people need to know how to replace them and what to replace them with. So I have no experience with that. Um, I've had bad experiences with PSP stuff uh, and I would absolutely love to try to, to have some link I could send people where I say, go to this store, make sure to use this link and buy this model and that's perfect but I got nothing. So this is certainly something I would like to see in the upcoming wiki, just a basic, like, here's a list of approved model numbers um, for, for those lithium ion batteries. But if anybody knows of a repository that exists now with this info, please let me know and I'll pin the comment, add it to the description or whatever else, because it's a problem that we're all going to run into soon. So we might as well just get on it now. So uh, thanks for the question. Sorry, I got nothing. Christopher Deo wants to know if the Majesco-produced Game Gears have the same faulty capacitors as the older variants. I think so, but I think it's smart to treat them all as if they do. So at the very least, uh, you know, lay down a towel so you don't scratch it, get the right screwdriver, carefully open it up, and do a visual inspection with some light. You could use your your cell phone light, whatever else in a magnifying glass or use another light and take a picture of it with your cell phone. Cause you're not just looking for, for caps that have exploded and leaked all over the place. You're looking for leaks underneath the capacitors, just pushing out around them. And I, I think it's, I think it's decent advice to say, let's treat all game gears as if they're taking time bombs, open them up and see. Um, and, and, if I'm wrong about that one, that's something I'm comfortable being wrong about. Telling people maybe you should just open it up carefully and do a visual inspection, that's a mistake I, I would be proud to make if it was a mistake. But uh, I think that's a smart move. And I think for a lot of these consoles, maybe that's a good move if it's your favorite and you want to make sure to preserve it. You know, as long as you're careful, you put it down on a soft surface so you don't scrape it or the screen in the case of handhelds. Open so carefully, look in there you know, if you're patient, no harm could come to that. And I think most people who care about their consoles would rather waste 20 minutes opening it up to check than they would going, eh, it's probably fine. And then having it die a year later. So that's just my opinion on that one. Do as you see fit with your consoles. But if it were me, I would pop it open just in case. 
60 frames per second wanted to know if there's any excellent sources for replacement carbon dot membranes for original controllers. They tried some Super Nintendo ones from a reputable seller and found that while they are admittedly functional, they feel bad to use. And even Nintendo seems to have a rough time with consistency because their SNES Classic controllers felt perfect to them, but they've heard that their Switch Online branded ones are uncharacteristically stiff compared to the original. So I have a couple of answers to that. I have bought those membranes from reputable sellers and I bought 10 of them and nine were perfect and one was garbage. So I don't know if it's just a global consistency issue with making those, but it would make sense if it was because they're not, uh, they're not manufacturing them in quantities of millions like they used to. So the quality control probably isn't as stringent and it would make sense that no matter where you get them, they're not consistently perfect or close to like they used to be. So, uh, you know, I got no real answer on where to get them. I would just keep buying them from reputable resellers and just giving giving feedback. You know, if it's a little stiff, maybe, I'm not saying this is your case. I'm just saying maybe it's that you're used to something that's 30 years old and is now squishy and the new harder one is how it's supposed to have felt when it was new and you're just not used to that. I'm not saying that's what's happening to you. I'm just saying that's plausible. And that's something that you probably would want to prepare for just in case. But if you have something where you install it, it's clean, it's done right, but like you, you hold down the right arrow and sometimes it runs and sometimes it doesn't, that's a problem. And I've run into that before where I cleaned, you know, I did my whole controller cleaning. Like I showed one of the first videos I ever put on YouTube where, you know, I use Goo Gone to make sure that anything that's in the cracks, even dust that has been sitting in there for years, that's all out. Then I use dish detergent to clean the Goo Gone off. And then I let it dry uh, with compressed air and then, you know, let it dry in indirect or direct sunlight just for a short period of time, just to get all the extra moisture out. Uh, don't leave it all day or else, you know, you'll, You'll ruin the case if it's in direct sunlight too long, but I've done all that, cleaned it up, uh, cleaned up the circuit boards with isopropyl, cleaned the cable, put the new pads in, made sure they were lined up perfectly, and I ended up taking it all apart and putting the older worn pads back in because I didn't like anything. They, you know, the buttons would stick, um, the, it didn't run correctly, it was just terrible. Uh, and I, I had that happen across the board from cheap ones I bought for a dollar to you know, ones that were only like three or four, but came from a reputable reseller. And once again, I've had that where I bought a pack of five, ended up throwing one set out and the other four were perfect. So um, I think it's just a problem that we have to try to work around. And maybe someday we'll, somebody will figure out exactly why this is happening. It could very well be that the, you know, the tolerances that are allowed in manufacturing for both controller shells and these pads are at 4%. And you just happen to have the, you know, the strong end of each side mixed together and have it not work. There's a bunch of reasons for it, but that's kind of just my thoughts on the whole thing. Um, and, you know, if anybody has a source that they know is always bending over backwards to, to get it right, let me know. I know Luke from Console 5 always tries his best, but he's also not manufacturing these. He's at the mercy of the suppliers. And it's totally plausible for a store to get 30 batches over the course of 10 years of perfect anything. And then batch number 31, you have issues. Like there's always that chance. So I'm not putting down any store. I'm just saying, you know, there's the more info we learn about this, the better for everybody. And I do hope that, that we get more reliable membrane replacements or more reliable ways to figure out why they're not always the way we want them so we could tweak it to our liking. 
couple more from Alan Bingham. Uh, I'm going to answer the controller question first, and I think you may have misunderstood the info, so I'll just kind of explain my thoughts. But Alan was talking about using Bluetooth over RF wireless technology, and uh, I, in the context of the controllers that you buy for retro consoles, like the 8-bit DOS and the retro bits, I would always try RF over Bluetooth because of the way those are designed and because of the way the Bluetooth protocol works. I've had much better experience with those, and I think the Porkshop Express Mr. Latency Test has proven the exact numbers of a lot of those controllers, and it's shown that all of our testing was accurate because it's tested it in a different way. So for me, in that scenario, yes. However, you have projects like Blue Retro, which tweaked their code to work with specific controllers to lower the latency in that. So uh, so you might actually end up with a scenario that you use Blue Retro and a, a more modern controller and have less latency than an RF solution. I know they changed the firmware and stuff, but I had, uh, I thought the Retrobit wireless RF was very laggy, even though it was not Bluetooth. Um, so it really depends on the total setup and I'm not throwing shade at Retrobit. I love their wire, their wired controllers. And I've heard that it's been firmware updates for the wireless. So I'm just giving my experience when I owned it personally. So really just, there is no preference anymore from Bluetooth over RF as far as a protocol. It's the total solution. And the general rule of, I don't want to use Bluetooth with Retro was only encompassing the solutions that didn't tweak it for latency. Um, Now, what you did mention is now that I'm out in the burbs and I don't have all of the wireless interference I had in the middle of Manhattan, do I have a different thought on that? And no, it still stands. I still want to use a wired controller when possible just because I don't want to think about it. I don't want to have to think about, you know, maybe my microwave is cracked and when I turn it on and kills my wireless connection to my console. I I just, I don't don't even want to think about it, but that's my preference. So I would just, no matter what controller you use or no matter what combination of stuff, check the Mr. Controller latency sheet. I will, as soon as I could find a moment of free time, do a live stream where I, I test myself and I teach other people how to build a kit and use it. I'll probably skip the kit building part and just teach people how to use it. So we could just get more data for these things. So the overall... You know, I would love to see it not say, do use Bluetooth, don't use Bluetooth. I would love the end result to always be just check that sheet, which is proven measurements to see what's the best combination and understand that if you're in a heavily wireless trafficked area, you're probably going to get worse results than if you're out in the middle of nowhere or something like that. Uh, And also... Uh, You asked a few months ago about uh, what I suggest with PSP batteries and how I said to remove the battery if you weren't playing for extended periods of time. I still stand by that one. If you play it a couple times a week, you're fine. Keep an eye on it. But if you play it a couple times a month or less, take the battery out when you're not using it so it doesn't expand and crack crack the plastic or, or do any other harm. However, Alan wanted to know what's the safest and most efficient way to store it. And I would... I would approach this from just basic electronic storage, no extreme temperature. So nothing that's going to go way below freezing or, or, you know, super hot, no extreme humidity and keep it in a place where if you don't use it for a year and it does expand and pop, it's not going to leak out and ruin everything else around it. So, you know, a thick Tupperware case by itself where you leave it cracked. So there's, you know, there's airflow in there. 
um, or just leave the top off, I guess, and you know, just isolate it from other things in a way where it's not going to ruin stuff that matters to you in no extreme temperature. And that should be it. Jason Guffey wants to know why some ROM carts are far more expensive than others. Is it cost of goods? Is it development? Uh, is it manufacturing? And I think it's a combination of all of those, but I think the number one factor is the chip that's used in it. So a ROM cart that's like the, you know, the Mega EverDrive X3 versus the Mega EverDrive Pro that can do Sega CD, that's a completely different set of chips that requires totally different development and everything about it is wildly expensive. So that's a pretty easy example in that if you just, you know, tried to make one yourself, just you know, just in creating a bill of materials, one would be far more expensive than the other. So that's certainly a factor. Um, I don't know if it costs more to have a lot of the finer pitched surface mount stuff added than some of the easier stuff. I don't think that would be a massive cost, but it would factor in. Um, and of course, development time is something a lot of people tend to overlook. And I mean that respectfully. It's just if you've never been in a dev environment, uh, it's easy to just say, well, you know, this thing only costs, you know, $80 to make. Why are they selling it for 200 Well, if it took months of their life to make this and they continue to support it, you know, that's got to be something that factors in that a lot of people just don't get or, or they just feel like being assholes about, which is not what you're doing, Jason, just explaining other people, you know, and their, their very odd take on how things need to be near free or else you're getting ripped off. Um, and uh, other times people make things more expensive just because they can. And that's a general statement. I'm not talking about ROM carts specifically, but very often you'll see something come out where they're the only person making it. Uh, and it's too cheap. It's far too cheap. And then they realize at the end of the year, all of these expenses come out and they have no idea that they barely broke even, if at all, and they should have been charging more the whole time. And I've also seen the flip side. I've also seen people see that. They've witnessed people lose money on a project because they didn't compensate for everything else that goes into it because there's so many factors when you sell something that you just don't ever expect until the end of the year you know different tax brackets shipping costs um any kind of failures returns labels bubble wrap there's there's so many things that you just would have never expected until you start doing it and i think a lot of companies look at that and then they would say well this is also the only one available so let's jack our prices up and then we'll see what happens. Maybe when competition comes out, we'll lower them. Uh, maybe we'll just keep them because whatever, if you want to buy it, you got to pay the money. And I get it. I, it's not how I would do it. I would personally find a happy medium. But, you know, you, when I've seen so many people lose money, I, I've had less um, annoyance for people that charge a little too much because I've seen so many people charge too little. So yeah, I mean, the answers to your question are, are luckily pretty easy this week in that cost of goods is a giant factor for all of this stuff. Um, development time should always be factored in and it's something that we should be happy to pay a fair price for. And some people just price their stuff expensive because, you know, they want to be the, the high-end version. And I think that applies for everything that we buy at electronics, but specifically about flashcards, yes, cost of goods is a huge factor in how a lot of these things are made and, and why the prices are what they are. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you'd like wherever you support in the latest Q&A post. 
The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. And I also just really like, as you see here, scrolling through in real time and answering the questions as they come. So uh, any questions you have, please ask. If I miss your question, it's always a mistake. So please either re-ask or just DM me if it's important. I may have missed a few this week because I read through their questions or comments on the Q&A thing, but missed the actual question they had. So my apologies if that happened this week. Just please re-ask again or DM me and I'll get to it. And of course, and especially, thank you so much to everybody who supports in any way possible, including just spreading the word about supporting because it is all of you who is keeping this alive and I appreciate it so much. So thanks very much, and I'll see you next week.